0: This is Beware of the Leopard, episode 211, Books...
1: was on display in the bottom of a locked filing cabinet stuck in a disused lavatory with a sign on the door saying beware of the leopard." leopard, leopard, leopard.
0: I'm Mark Steadman and I wrote the book on self-referential podcast
1: intros. I'm John Bounds and there's more to life than books you know but not much more.
0: I'm John Hickman and if I've got a book in me I'm hoping it's a pamphlet because that's going to hurt on the way out. (laughs)
2: And I'm Danny Smith. I don't want to achieve immortality through my work. I want to achieve it through not dying. The person that said that is actually uh, Woody Allen, who happened to achieve immortality by being a massive nonce.
1: No. <laughs>
2: <laughs> He's only quite a small nonce. <laughs> oh, no. His his nonciness is massive. Right. Well, with, with that bombshell. <clears throat> Welcome to
0: Beware of the Leopards, the back pages of the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. If you've not heard our earlier episodes, uh, we're a, we've got a whole back catalogue of 60-some-odd episodes uh, where we talk about the entirety of Douglas Adams' universe. Now, uh, having done all of that, we tasked ourselves to write our own entries. Why? Because the algorithm is hungry, ever starving for more content, <laughs> and we are just the gentlemen to feed it. Danny um
2: what's the last book you ate um i recently tried to read a book by um stephen knight about uh, the freemasons and it's like this huge expose of the freemasons written in the 80s uh, and it
1: is largely fictional <laughs> my chemistry teacher at school had been a freemason and he'd fallen out with them, and he he used to enliven up um, chemistry lessons by telling you the secrets of Freemasonry, like how to do the handshakes and things like that.
2: And today we're gonna make uh, lead into gold. <laughs> We've known how to do it for ages. Would it would have be been good if it was your CDT teacher,
0: you know, you teaching, get getting his plumb line out and his uh and his set square. I like the idea that there's there's maths teachers that have got. Sort of Freemasonry skills; like they can actually tell you what the square root of minus one is, instead of what mathematicians actually do, which is call it
1: i. Well, it's complex. The answer is complex. <laughs> also, the, um, little maths joke. But there yeah, there's
0: maybe there's special Freemason numbers. Well, they're they're into the, they're into the magic ratio stuff that Danny was just alluding to, or All the Dan Brown.
2: I worked with someone, and their dad happened to be like a quite high-ranking member of the police. There was like a special task force in the late. 60s, early 70s to crack down on LSD in Britain, and he was like quite high up on that, like so he's like quite a well-known police officer. But uh, they have they have like a Valentine's ball where the women can invite men, I think it is, and I got invited because I knew this girl, and, and I went to the Freemasonry place, and um, it was incredibly dull. Like, I, I, like that's the real secret of Freemasonry. They're they're, they're <laughs> Their mid-level businessmen tugging each other's hands behind closed doors.
1: I, I mean, we're talking about the last book I read because I wanted to, or the last book I read because I've just finished. Um, Drago the Fire Safety Dragon, a small book given free by the Oxfordshire Fire Service to teach. Uh, well, small dragons. I can. Ex- I understand <laughs> how to cross the road.
2: There's a lot. There's a lot going in
1: there. Road safety and fire safety. Firemen again, a bit previous.
2: Expanding into road safety, aren't they? Yeah, stay in your lane.
1: It's also got a sort of sticker on the back of it which says uh, drago says don't play with matches or lighters. I mean, it's solid <laughs> advice <laughs> for, for a dragon he's no elephant. you wouldn't think a dragon would be the uh, <laughs> oh my the gosh. go-to fictional creature to, to be the fire services um mascot of choice. no well,
0: that's like the original firefighters were also the people lighting the fires so is that, is that is that true, John, or did you just make that up? Yeah, yeah, that's 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 a thing from the Roman Empire, that you basically paid uh, insurance against fire to the the firefighting people, and if you didn't pay it, then they wouldn't come and put your fire
2: out. Hey, oh, nice city you got here. Be a shame if something happened to it. Are you thinking those?
1: Are you thinking about the other group of Italians, the mob? <laughs> <laughs> well, it, no, it's definitely true that in um in sort of particularly in sort of. Uh, early um united states city you had to pay a subscription to the fire service and they put basically a plaque on your house as so they'd save that they'd only save the ones that had got their fire services plaque on them if they started to burn and basically sort of like municipal fire services evolved because they realized that if you don't put the fire out on the one next door it has bad consequences for Jonathan, your wooden building. that's
0: buildings. socialism and that's bad. Thank you, John, for making the joke that I was, yeah. We are terrible. We
2: are terrible.
0: Yeah, we don't We don't deserve this planet. We don't deserve to be the apex species. No, none of yeah,
2: it. Yeah, talking of everything being on
0: fire, yeah. <laughs> what book, if you could burn any book, what book would you burn? Fahrenheit 451. Oh, no. <laughs> no, no, actually, I really like that. Oh, there's the thing that. There's the thing, isn't there, where you're supposed to burn your textbooks at the end of school. Mm-hmm. Did anyone get involved in that? Yeah, I think I did that at the end of. It might have been. It must have been A levels. Yeah, it must have been A levels because you couldn't buy matches when you were when you were sixteen.
2: <laughs> exactly. Yeah. You know when the, the there'd be like a Christian group that come over and do an assembly every so often, and there's a teacher at the back telling you to take it seriously, even though they're weird and like like you really not take it seriously, and they give you, you give you all a, a free Bible at the end. We we lit them on fire on the first first playtime we got in the middle of the playground.
1: I mean that paper's very thin. <laughs> you no, know, I've still, I've still got mine. It's, uh, it, it, looks, sits on the shelf next to Mao's little red book. Same size, very similar cover. It looks very, it looks very nice.
0: These are the ones with like the red plastic cover. Yeah, yeah. So, Danny, did the Freemasons try and sign you up that night? Because I get the impression if you go in, it's like an MLM thing, and, and there's it's a, a
2: pretty exclusive club, mate. And me, there's a whole thing with balls, with white balls and black balls. They did do a weird thing, but like they did a series of speeches, and I get the impression that there were some heavily coded words in the speeches. Ooh! So they were making one speech, but also making another that we didn't know about. And then um, they kind of sat in the corners of the room, and they always like they stamped the floor in a triangle to like finish a sentence.
0: Stamp the floor
2: in a triangle. And there was a secret room of mystery that I wasn't allowed to go in. Oh, Why are your kids always obsessed with my secret room of mystery? Uh you, which I stuck my head in it. was just a checkerboard floor and
0: So stamping the floor to agree, is that like how like with beat poetry you do that? I you think know, it was really more of like
2: uh and 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 th- this pact is sealed and then it was a stamp at the front and then stamp at the left and the stamp at the like, <sighs> like thing. <sighs> So have we? We've all read from Hell, right? So that's that's an
0: interesting book about Freemasonry. I've
1: I've, se- I've seen yeah, I've seen the film.
0: It's a it's a fantastic piece of work. Each chapter has its own set of footnotes, and the footnotes will take you longer. And it, it's it's a bit like when you do Shakespeare at school, and you've got to have like the York notes alongside it to understand what you've just read. But it's very rewarding to do it, and it, it, un- it unravels a lot of um, interesting things about London and history and and yeah, about Freemasonry as well.
2: And at the end, he does say, like, all of this is kind of like a, a like absolute bollocks and not true. Like, this, th- this theory is clearly not true, but I've chosen to do it just because it's the most interesting one. Yeah, exactly. So he, he shows all the workings out and then says, yeah,
0: you could put whatever workings out you wanted into this computer. And it would spit out an answer. <laughs>
2: Unlike one of my best Christmas presents to do with Jack the Ripper, uh, that John and Libby actually bought me for Christmas, they bought me the book. Uh, so, you know the guy that wrote With Nan and I? So he got commissioned to write a book about Jack the Ripper. And then five years later, the publisher said, where's this book we gave you all the money for? And he was like, I'm still writing it. And apparently, he became like obsessed, and it like there was a huge amount of time that passed. The publisher dropped him, he found another publisher, and the book is like a doorstop. It is the size of uh, like one of my first PCs, it is a massive researched tome putting forward a theory that is clearly the workings of somebody that lost their mind halfway through and it's it's more interesting as i think an examination of this guy and his thinking processes rather than like an actual theory that holds up to any any sort of standard of of, of critical thinking and i ripped through this book because i was fast it was absolutely fascinating like the amount of research that this guy has done and he obviously lost his shit like halfway through
0: i mean i think um it sounds like a, it sounds like the, the the best example of what is kind of interesting about that sort of ripper stuff is it, it, it is more about the writerly process than it is almost about the thing anymore because you can't work out what happened
1: well when dan was mentioning the um the book about the freemasons and like dan brown stuff i was just thinking i would never read a book like like particularly like dan brown stuff i've got absolutely zero interest in all this medieval malarkey then i realized that i will absolutely read any book that purports to have a new theory about who robin hood really was and i've I've read hundreds of them including one that says he's one of the knights templar and uh, oh oh, wow wow. that is basically a dan brown book. well done yeah (laughs)
2: In other media, I will consume a TV program that I know is bad and enjoy it in its badness. I will listen to music that is not bad on a judgment call because it's pop music and there's associations with young girls and obviously young girls don't have any say so haha this music is bad but music that is kind of like badly recorded or or not great or off off the wall or like I will listen to bad music and get some enjoyment from it. Have you ever read a book so bad that you've enjoyed
1: I really like reading novelizations of TV sitcoms so yes of course you do yes you do, <laughs> you do. John says surprising no one they're often written by really quite good writers like just to to make the make their money. So there's a guy called Paul Abelman who wrote some apparently really quite weird esoteric shit about witchcraft. That was his passion project. But he also uh, turned out the novelization of the first series of Heidi High, for example.
2: (laughs) The book that I encourage you all to read for badness sake is a book called digital fortress. It's by Dan Brown and it is spectacularly wrong on every time mentions computers, which the book is almost exclusively about. Like, it, this guy hasn't even read the Wikipedia article on cyber security and he's having to go anyway. And it is, like, you all the way through you go, no, no, no. He goes into massive detail about worms. But then kind of, like, forgets to mention that they're a virus like that they're self-replicating like code in the computer and you get the impression that it's actual worms for, <laughs> like, at least two chapters before you are like if you didn't know anything about computers after two chapters you'd be like oh it's a v- uh, okay yeah no it's it's bits of computer <laughs> language like right they haven't actually put worms in it, like, I, I encourage you to read it because it is just hilarious how wrong he gets everything and how bad the action is.
1: And so having worked in the publishing industry, it was a, a huge thing where um, sort of scales drop from your eyes in the sense that I used to believe things that were in books. And then, you know, when you you write them or edit them or or, or publish them, you are acutely aware that the people who make them know, ah absolutely nothing and particularly in the de- in the days before wikipedia what did authors used to do to research well the answer is they didn't they just made it up knowing that no one else could look it up either <laughs> <laughs> oh
0: your your bond your bond fellow was a big fan of that like he just made stuff up like homosexuals
2: can't whistle <laughs> dogs can't whistle. <laughs> something like that they, they just just made stuff up like
1: that that's why they have little dogs that can't run away they can't swim and they mess about how does the, i mean i don't I've never read one nor seen any of the films but how would that um, work into a spy plot? I read um, Live and Let Die
2: and it was spectacularly racist (laughs) like wow Like, like that racist like you don't want the book in your house in case somebody kind of like knows how racist it is and they go hang on we both know that that book's super racist and you're keeping it in your bedroom, like in a little shrine, is it? No, it's on the bookshelf. Yeah, a little shrine, a little racist shrine, you're <laughs> racist.
1: Can I do my Ian Fleming joke at this point? Please, uh, everyone, buckle up. Lads, do you like Ian Fleming? I don't know. I have never Ian Flemed.
2: <laughs> also obligatory love. <laughs> Sorry. Oh, Mark's not giving you nothing. He's not even giving you the, the obligatory laughing.
1: <laughs> it's it's very similar to my ruddy-eyed Kipling joke.
0: So, John Bounds, you wrote something about kids' books, did you not?
1: Yeah, I did, and not uh, Drago the Dino, either. Um... So I've 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 investigated the children's the what you might call the lucrative children's book market a lot recently, and I don't think this is from a, an entry from the guide. I think it might be from the sort of uh, about the publisher section at the end.
3: After Galactopedia took over the sub ethernet, traditional publishing struggled to keep its editors in the manner to which they were accustomed. Some even had to move out of the manor and turn it into a spa and hotel. Fourth editor of Hitchhiker's Guide, Lig Lurie Jr, did some quick research on his lunch break and decided the plan was to pivot into the lucrative children's book market. Existing media properties moving into books to take advantage of their notoriety and provide easy sales was the model, and children's books were short, light and had great longevity as children were unlikely to transport themselves forward in time to watch the film version. Titles such as The Leopard, The Witch and The Filing Cabinet, Five Go Mad in Zero Gravity, and the series of books featuring a magical boy with two heads, Zari Bebelbrotter.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I'm not saying that we're getting lazy with our names anymore.
1: (laughs) 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 <laughs> no, that's deliberate, that, rags. That's deliberate. I right? don't no, get it. it what's no your no John, to do? John B. Boob space <laughs> name that's bounce. Deliberate.
2: B. Boob space name bounce was my finest hour. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it was deliberate. Sorry. That's what makes it worse, John. That's what makes it worse. It's when you're <laughs>
3: crying. Lick's pivot failed and copies of Junior Dodo publication's work now provide the foundations of buildings on many of the less well-governed planets in the galaxy. Particularly poorly selling were James and the Giant Breasts of Eccentric (laughs) (laughs) Columbics, We're Going on a Wocket Hunt, and The Bug Blatter Beast That Came to Tea. What Nick failed to realise is that the best way to produce a best-selling children's book author is not to find someone who's written a children's book and make them famous, but to find someone already famous and get them to at least pretend to write a children's book. Infinidim's junior publishing arm followed this to great effect, flooding time and alternate time with single best-selling copies of Trillion Astra's book about a young, fearless reporter who always looks good in ruffled clothes. And of course, Ulon Kolufid's young adult blockbuster, Some More of Your Parents' Greatest Mistakes. <laughs> All of this meant that great children's work was left unpublished, such as this piece from Pristetnik Vogon Jelts, who styled himself Dr Puce for kids, and was reduced to storytime appearances in libraries, like this. Vogern slam, burgle slam, slam I girl That slam I girl that slam I girl I do not furgle that slam I girl Do you slurg fungible rumpling burlop? I do not furt them, Slammy-Gurlop. I do not smurge Rumpling-Burlop. Would you furt them here or there? I would not furt them here or there. I would not furt them anywhere. I do not furt, Rumpling-Burlop. I do not snug them, Slammy-Gurlop. Oh, poor Emma. your <laughs> splurgenings in a mouse. Nurgid gumblings with a spouse, fashy wanglug in a louse, Pingoid clumpets with a spouse. I do not furt them here or there. I do not furt them anywhere. Hangile nay furt rumpling burlop. Nurgle furt off slam I girlop. <laughs> <laughs> <shit>, <laughs>
1: And there's a there's a bit of FX for you to do at the end, Mark, where I want you to fade out to the tortured screams of children in a carpeted area of a library.
2: Oh in oh, buckets. That was Beware the Leopard. Oh. Thank you very much for listening. <laughs> oh dear. Oh, you fucking John Barnes <laughs> with the wind. Just sneaking. Oh. That is that's he kept remarkable. it
1: quiet, didn't he? He kept it quiet. Oh. He He didn't talk oh. it up at all and it's it's in there. I really like Dr. Seuss. I think Doctor Seuss cared. Um I'm not quite sure David Williams cared thank you or thank um you. david Badil or frank lampard junior There's so this is um
0: i had this in my, in my head to go into my piece and i and i never got there so i'm i'm glad you've pulled this little thread because uh, david williams what he's managed to do is he's managed to persuade someone to position him as the role doll of a generation and they've managed to get quentin blake to do the drawings to cement him as as the Roald Dahl of a generation. But he doesn't understand Roald Dahl. He's like... And this is a metaphor I use too often, but he's like the aliens in 2001 A Space Odyssey, where he puts you in, like, a simulacrum of a room, but nothing is actually real, so the drawers don't open and the cereal isn't in the box and all all that stuff. So he thinks he's written a Roald Dahl book, but all he's done is write contextless things that he thinks are jokes that are gross... So he has this recurring character that's the dinner lady, and it's like, oh, what's for lunch today? And It's like toenail sandwiches. Like that, you haven't earned that. You can't say that.
2: Yeah, that's not justified. Like, oh, yeah. was vicious and disgusting. But he, like, he had a message. He had messages. Like he, he had values that he was trying to infuse into into his work. Like, I know, I don't like men with beards. He he, he did have values, whereas Dave Williams just says. Like the worst things possible, and just really cruel things. Like that, like there's jokes, and there's anti-fat jokes, and there's kind of like a bully would read David Wall- William's work and go, yeah, yeah, no, I'm the hero of this story."
0: He also, problematically, as someone who's tried to distance himself from his previous work, does have uh, uh, an Asian shopkeeper, and he does do the voice in the uh, in the audiobooks.
1: There was that story about he'd promised a class a copy of his new his new book, and he sent one. Copy. <laughs> oh no. That, oh. You know, that was on so I, could, I presume their lawyers can stand it up.
0: So uh, I wrote a thing about dictionaries, and here is the thing what I wrote
3: Belgium is the rudest word in the galaxy and is banned everywhere apart from the one place where they don't know what it means. It is a universal rite of passage that every youngling, be they a prepubescent biped or a larval bivalve, upon first encountering a dictionary, will use the book, electronic device or collection of differently smelling rocks to look up the rudest word in their lexicon. The advent of the Babelfish dramatically reduced the size of most dictionaries, since the moment the reader utters the word aloud, the definition is automatically excreted into their brains. The deeply repressed inhabitants of Basil V were the only species not to adopt these lighter dictionaries. Any basilites encountering embarrassment, especially of a reproductive nature, would turn immediately to stone and thus die. This made the act of physical congress more an exercise in office administration than an expression of love. Weeks of bureaucratic foreplay would precede the proceedings, including a full physical examination with results disclosed to both parties. After all, it was concluded, the sight of a male appendage is usually enough to take the hanky out of any potential panky. Still, casualties are common amongst post-pubescent basilites. This has led to a common pastime amongst the famously bureaucratic Vogons, who would travel the length of the galaxy to Basel V, locate an orgy and bet on who got hard first. <laughs> the Basilites turning to stone or the Vogons rubber stamping the paperwork. <laughs> The only other sentient life form known to have died from shame was one Colin Evans from Cardiganshire Earth. <laughs> the details are irrelevant to this entry, but the incident involved a sewing machine, a personal pan pizza, a chinchilla and four members of the Aberystwyth male voice choir. <laughs> Learning styles are ever-evolving and publishers are always keen to explore new ways of flogging a dead Arcturan megahorse. One such example involved a modification to the infinite improbability drive, allowing the curious explorer to see and experience with all available senses the definition of any word they care to look up. This included adverbs and conjunctions, which, by dint of the Babel fish's existence, were readily and easily understood. But the project was doomed to fail. Shortly after its announcement and its ceremonial powering on, a plucky youngster from the nether constellation of Neap endangered herself and the entire solar system by attempting to look up the dictionary definition of the word dictionary. This created a fractal event that witnessing scientists after years of intense therapy would describe as making the Big Bang look like a wet fart. Proof, again, that really nobody likes a smart ass.
0: What's the weirdest word you've ever looked up in a dictionary, Mark? I used to have one of those little pocket uh, personal organisers, and it had a thesaurus in it. It didn't have a dictionary. A a persion? Uh, I can't remember. It it wouldn't have been a brand name, because, you know, uh, it would have been whatever was uh, cheapest in the Argos catalogue.
2: I'm just a poor boy, nobody loves me.
0: He's just a poor boy with a tiny PDA. And...
1: (laughs)
2: It's so fucking silly. I don't
1: know. I wouldn't go. I wouldn't go on about the size of your PDA. It's not going to get us many listeners. No, indeed. Although Douglas did write a phant- phenomenal piece on writing an article on a PDA. Would it? Would it have been a palm pilot or something? Yeah, something like that. But yes,
0: I, I remember cycling through the words and then finding arse. Um, and, and <laughs> stuff.
1: Is that the? Is that the the first rude word in the dictionary? Mm. you skipped over anus there nah. I was gonna say, it depends if you think the biological words are rude words
2: yeah but anus a verb as well as a noun
0: not the way i do it yeah. <laughs> <laughs> i remember i remember everybody being very excited to find out that smeg from red dwarf did have like an etymology and using the dictionary to to show each other oh no that that's a word so we are doing swears when we say that that's we're clever.
2: Are we in a safe space?
0: I mean always always, always, Danny. It's- you know we take this and put it on the internet, don't you, Danny?
2: <laughs> can I can I trust that can I trust that our viewers are like this is a safe space and this might ruin my reputation as As,
0: as uh, what? Is th- this is, this is the one that's gonna do it, is it? This is the one. Yeah, everyone who's listening has signed an affidavit. It's fine. Is that what that is? An affidavit? A disclaimer. Danny,
2: no one who's listened to all of these podcasts could think any less of you. I remember looking up sex in the dictionary and then missing because dyslexia and then finding the word set and it having pages and pages of definitions and being more excited about the fact that set has like 14 definitions of the word than actual sex which is very very tiny entry and being like my mind blown because there's so many ways you can word, and apparently "set" is the longest entry in the Oxford English Dictionary.
0: That is super cool. Like you, these little utility words that can do so much. I mean, how on earth do you define words like "and"? I mean, it, it gets us into sort of uh, Blackadder territory where they have uh, Robbie Coltrane on playing the. Uh... <laughs> That splendid brain box, Dr. Johnson. But, you know, because it, it doesn't really mean anything, isn't isn't helpful. Like, how do you define the? I wish you many confabulations.
1: Absolutely. <laughs> Sausage! <laughs> Sausage! Damn your eyes! I mean, dictionaries are fantastic. And one of, the, one of the major things about the sort of the Hitchhiker's Guide, really, or the sort of expansion of the internet, is that you can look up absolutely any word. And I remember, well... And I'm not necessarily in proper dictionaries. But, like, do you remember, Dan, when we came up with the name of our magazine? <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> do
0: please tell the listener what your magazine was called.
2: I still use the email that we set up for that as my my main official email. That is your business address. <laughs> and I have had to explain what I do. Is more than... <laughs> so we were looking for a name for a magazine and we didn't want to... Everything that we suggested, like we spent a whole night, like a planning session. <laughs> at one whole literally, night. Literally
1: at the Goose. Uh, we started at the Goose and then we moved on to the Hair and Hands. So it was a long meeting. And it was just thinking of a name for this magazine. It was just, just the same words to each other. Thinking, no. It's probably John that suggested. Dirty Bristo. No, I'm not, I don't know. I'm. Not, I don't think I'd have known that term, to
2: be honest. So, uh, should we explain what a dirty Bristo is? Is this, is this the? Is this the type No, they podcast?
1: can use the
0: internet. They can look it up in the dictionary.
2: <laughs> yeah, uh, urbandictionary.com, dot com. A dirty bristow give you. I mean, Rusty Trombone is is also a. Is it A, synonym, a it's very, synonym. it's a very similar. It's a very similar act. And are we? Oh, is this Bristow
0: as in as in Eric?
2: Yes. Yeah. So Eric Bristow, when he was taking his shot, this is a no,
0: for st- noted for for the non English viewer listener. uh This is Eric Bristow,
1: the darts player. Yes.
2: Before he retired with dartsitis, which is a real thing, <laughs> and you shouldn't laugh about it. No.
1: My dad had had dartsitis. It's not a laughing thing. So before before he retired,
2: with a fictional uh, thing that uh, doesn't exist, um, so he would take his shot. But as he was as he was moving his hands backwards, forwards, and, and aiming the shot, he would also stick his tongue out a little bit, just like that, a little bit. while he's taking a shot.
0: John Hickman, what have you got for us, mate? I've got a little bit for you. All
1: right. All right, lad. All right. What is your bit about? ghostwriting? Ah!
3: Who wrote it for you? Your mum. The people of planet Earth have a popular idea that a room full of monkeys hitting keys at random on a typewriter for an infinite amount of time will eventually write the complete works of William Shakespeare. In fact, this has already happened. The ghost-writers of New Nubayaturn are a clan of Nathetian apes who write endless tracts. Untrained in wordcraft and without a language of their own, much of what they write is incomprehensible gibberish. However, the rate of output is so high that they manage to crank out an impressive list of celebrity biographies, such as Slyty Bartfast's memoirs, Nothing But A Good Time, and Ford Prefect's account of working as a waiter in the south-east of England fear and loathing in Las (laughs) Iguanas. The problem with infinite monkeys isn't one of writing, but one of reading. How do you find the actual books in all the words? And the thing is that, in fact, Shakespeare was a speed reader from Linvaris. The Linvarians can read the written word at a speed that cannot be defined or measured, and are much in demand in the publishing houses of Ursa Minor Beta. They are the best chance you have at finding signal in the noise coming out of the ghost writers of New Beerturn. And Shakespeare used his gift during a visit to Earth, and Tudor London in particular. He only meant to stop off on the primitive planet for a few days, but unfortunately got into a bet with a bear <laughs> about who could draw the biggest crowd, and spent the rest of his working life staging plays in London using manuscripts he found in the New Beerturn sub-ether intranet. He later retired home to Linvaris, where, to this day, they trade on his fame, (laughs) despite him doing all his best reading 7,000 light years away.
0: Exit. Exit. Exit Exit. 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 (laughs) (laughs) Pursuit. I get a
3: little bit hot under
0: the bother um, about the whole Shakespeare ghostwriting thing, because I want, I just, it's not that I want to believe so much, it's just that, it just feels so like why do we need like what's the what's what's the purpose here like what are we really serving? how many of us here uh like the various theories about Shakespeare either didn't exist or it was all written by someone else, where are we all going with this?
2: I can tell you why in in like less than five words it's because he was poor, if he was tough that had written all that, there'd be no doubt about his, the veracity of his work, but because he was poor came from nowhere. Obviously, like there's not enough historical record, and obviously, a poor person can possibly be expected to change the course of English literature. It's it's classism wrapped up in mysteries and riddles. Yeah, it's, yeah,
1: you're right. It's basically class. But there is a thing where they didn't really consider. Um copyright or authorship in the same way so there are large tracks of certain bits of things that are shakespeare that are that were written by somebody else because he's just gone okay here's a play about don't know slightly Bartfast or whatever that bit's good i'll keep it and i'll write on top of it and um if they'd got like plagiarism detection software in the uh sixteen hundreds, he would have been flagged. Yeah, I mean in fairness, if that stuff was was, you know, more more pounced upon, we wouldn't have
0: reggae or hip hop. You know what I mean? It's 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 endemic in our culture that we remaster and remix.
1: Popular culture is built on, on things like that, so Paul Weller, he decided, OK, I'm going to quote the Beatles, and like people didn't used to be quite so upset about that sort of thing.
0: As long as you put 1962 in brackets after each line and then you
1: put it in your footnotes, you were <laughs> right. When I was in a band years ago, I wrote a song and I was finding the lyrics quite hard, so I just sort of borrowed the lyrics from a Leonard Cohen song. <laughs>
0: so you literally wrote one song to the tune of another? I borrowed the
1: lyrics! <laughs> I mean, not all of them, just bits. <laughs> and uh, so so if um, when we recorded the thing, I just credited it to, to uh, Leonard as well, as if we'd been writing it together.
2: Yeah. <laughs> Co-written by Leonard Cohen, yeah. but don't tell him.
0: <laughs> that reminds me of, um, I don't know if it's apocryphal, but I, I, I like to think it's true, that Mike Bat. For a joke, Mike Bat is the, is the is the was the creator of the Wombles and also the manager or agent for uh, popular songstress um, uh, Katie Melua. Katie Melua, uh, and apparently he did a Wombles track, which was uh, of, of so many minutes of silence, and it is credited as Bat Slash Cage, and I believe. Oh wow! He was sued. <laughs> <laughs> so, back to Shakespeare for a second though he didn't he didn't need to actually go around to all the other theatres and write everything down because they were all writing in a tradition anyway, so there was like a canon of work that they were all reworking um there are plays from that are still we have written records from from Greek theatre that were translated into theatre in Rome in Latin. That then Shakespeare's used the stories from wholesale. So like he was he was rewriting and readapting all the time things that were like of the canon of the time too, which is I think really really cool and quite interesting. And like it's interesting because people then make ten things I hear about you now, and Romeo and Juliet or Romeo plus Juliet or or whatever you know. So I quite I quite like the way the story lives on and, and gets gets rewritten and, and adapted. And uh, to finish us off, uh, here is correspondent Danny Smith
3: with a special on interactive books. Interactive books, such as the sleek, well-designed and thoroughly affordable compendium you have in your hands, have been around for a long time. It could be argued footnote mainly by the sort of people that don't spend very long writing for the guide and go slinking off to the Encyclopedia Galactica to pay off the resulting bar tabs and disorder fines. Splitters. That all books are interactive, footnote. (laughs) The only recorded instances of passive book reading is the Barnes & Noble tomes of Coffeen Shop 7, who are known to aggressively fling their stories directly into the minds of passing humanoids just to be shits. (laughs) This is, of course, not to be confused with (laughs) passive-aggressive book reading, which is fine, just stop asking. (laughs) In fact, the very point of a book is to be interacted with to some degree. Interactive stories, however, have been around much longer. One of the earliest forms of choose-your-own-adventure stories happened in school textbooks, where the reader would be given a trail to follow. Go to page 78 would read the precise pencil scrawl in the margin. Ever curious, the often young reader would duly turn to the required page, only to be met with, go to 12. Now committed, our hapless pupil would indeed go to page 12. But alas, they're met with yet another labyrinthine command, go to 42 exasperated our charge would seek out the fated number only to be met with the famous photo of Argle Blacks the jagged astride his many-legged octojet. only this photo is doctored to include a phallus going into his mouth and a word bubble coming out which reads your dad's a willy woofter even though Argle Blacks the jagged is reported to have said no such thing <laughs> luckily these stories got more sophisticated often read by the adolescents of the species These stories, more often than not, took the form of elaborate power fantasies that involved violence, rescuing and heaving things. To accommodate this, the setting of these adventures would be at a point in the more violent past. During a species-late capitalism cycle, the setting would be medieval, often glossing over the facts that an average peasant's life would contain a lot fewer working hours, a more equitable system of direct governance, more holidays and festivals, and focus on swords and dragons and whatnot. Of course, when capitalism inevitably collapses and the species moves on, the stories tend to be about fighting it out in the harrowing environs of late capitalism. Below is an excerpt from a popular choose-your-own-adventure book, Keith and the Brokerage of Bastards.
2: (laughs) (laughs) OK, we have uh, 364. Uh, We come into the action.
3: Phew! The HR harpy swoops past your desk. Any more for Daryl's collection? His vasectomy is tomorrow! She screeches inhumanly as her leathery wings flap the fetid recycled air about the office. Hiding and punching the work experience boy in the kidneys have left you hungry. Unfortunately, your zero-hour contract doesn't allow for paid lunch breaks. Do you? Have lunch anyway and eat at your desk, hoping no one will notice? three six five work through your lunch break three six six go for lunch and treat yourself to some of that tralamillo on toast the food all the entire culture have collectively decided to eat at the same time for some reason three six seven i'm hungry
1: and also that was the only one i could remember sorry
3: (laughs) thank the stars and the moon above you think to yourself as you skip to the local expensive sandwich place Thank all the celestial bodies that the government saw fit to keep these sandwich shops open during the last global pandemic. You enter the shop. I mean, a lot of people had to die to save them, but it's just so convenient to spend the couple of hours' pay on a meal to get you through the next couple of hours' work. You order your meal. There's a stinky man slinking by the bad, mass-produced art on the walls. Drat is a tabloid hack. And he took your picture. Your pocket computer beeps with an alert. It's the photo. The headline reads: "Economy in ruins. Young people squandering money on tralamillo on toast. Lose two health in guilt and rage damage. Eat it anyway." Three seven one. Attack the tabloid hack. Three seven two.
0: Well, should we do it? Should we go back up the up, up the tree and do it? Okay. Yeah, this is yeah. This is all good. Choose your own adventure stuff, really. Oh, we we died. Well. I mean, I was going to attack
2: the journalist, by the way. That's what I was going to do. So desk coping. No one notice. Three, six, five.
3: You open your lunchbox at your desk. It contains raw rice you found near a church after a wedding. One banana you stole from the display downstairs that you hope is real. Spam half a bag of breath mints. You may add these items to your inventory or eat them to add half a point of health for each item. Reading a news article on the phone, the headline reads, Not enough young people are buying Tralomillo on toast. Economy in ruins. Take two points of health in guilt damage. Oh no, your boss has noticed you with your lunch. Roll for conversation. Win, 368. Lose,
0: 369. <laughs> um, we win. Okay, so we, uh, I guess we've reached a dead end, so let's go back to that first choice then.
2: Uh, have your lunch anyway and eat it at your desk Hoping no notice, 365 Work through your lunch break, 366 Or go out for lunch and treat yourself to some like toast, the food the entire culture Has collectively decided to eat at the same time For some reason It's got to be 366
3: Diligently you work through your lunch break Lose to health Luckily no one actually knows what a systems analyst <laughs> does So your analysing of those systems poorly Due to crippling hunger goes unnoticed And so does your sacrifice You could have taken your lunch break after all. Your supervisor doesn't give a fuck, never has done, and probably never will do. Go to 3.70. And
2: that's the last of it that's all I've got.
0: (laughs) I mean, we're we're speaking to someone who is a D&D DM, uh, and as someone who has made basically a choose-your-own-adventure podcast, uh, I I applaud you and... uh, I now know where your um, Thursday nights have been spent when you should have been spending them recording a podcast with us, but that's fine. You've got your new D&D friends. It's okay.
2: <laughs> I was obsessed with the Ian Jackson, Steve Livingstone.
1: Ian Livingstone and Steve Jackson.
2: Yeah, those books. I was obsessed with them. I collected like, I, I nearly got the entire, entire run. And I would go through them and I would explore every single option. Like, I wouldn't play them as they intended to be played, but I'd do the obvious thing where I'd put my thumb in it and go back and, and like, explore the entire things.
0: I mean, you know, it, well, what is putting your thumb on there if not just the saved game slot of our time, you know?
2: Yeah, of course. Like you got a save state. I would love to meet one of those guys and go, like, you know I cheated, right? You know and
0: everyone like, cheated, right? Ian,
1: Ian Livingston's very approachable on Twitter, actually. Uh, he loves to talk about that sort of shit.
2: And I would love him to go it is absolutely fine, I forgive you. And I would be like, <laughs> there would be a bit of guilt that has, that has hung on my heart since I was a teenager, just lifted at that point.
1: Weirdly, I've always wanted to meet um, James Joyce and uh, apologise for putting my thumb in the second page of, of Ulysses and then pretending I'd read it. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Well, since we're talking about books, gentlemen, um, how does the notion of writing a book together strike you? Mm, With you. I don't know I don't yeah I don't know okay yeah so so basically I'll write it and then you three can put your names on it and then we'll say that. that yeah,
2: can I that, shout right. at you while it happens there you go you can you, every now and again
0: I will be at the keyboard and then Danny can sit next to me and just every now and again just bat my hand away just I'll just be typing and he'll just bat my hand away and say I'm contributing <laughs>
2: I love the idea that I'm the cat of this podcast. <laughs> and they're like, helping, helping. <laughs> and then wander off again, like completely entitled going, yeah, that was me. I <laughs>
1: fucking contribute. We're going to lock you in a hotel room until you've delivered it. <laughs>
0: Well, if you would like, dear listener, if you would like to get a copy of the book, uh, we are actually, this is a thing that's happening, um, then btlpodcast.com. Uh, there is a form to enter your email address. Uh, we will tell you more about the book when it arrives. Uh, so go and do that now. BT, do, do it now. If you are in traffic, get out your phone now while you're driving and do this. Um, <laughs> it's it's completely if, safe to do so. it's really. If the police pull you over, tell them it's really important.
2: If I don't hear about a serious train or rail accident... Caused by this particular call to action I will be fucking furious.
1: If you are shagging right now, reach behind their head and pick up your phone. (laughs) (laughs) BTLpodcast.com.
0: Sign up for our newsletter. We've never asked you to do anything like this before, but if you like us, and if you'd like like this this thing, we're British, we're not supposed to. This thing that we've made, if you'd like to see what happens when we write stuff, uh, then BTLpodcast.com and sacrifice your email address and uh, as a reward, we will tell you when we have our book ready. Well, we'll probably tell you when we want to to ask you for money to help make the book happen. You know how it happens. Publishing is dead. And if you're listening in the future after we've already done it, then you know that we've done it. Yeah. <laughs> we <laughs> will so yeah, we, we will
1: haven't words. have oin.
2: <laughs> we will and haven't have and future people. Like I'm totally sorry. I never recycled anything. I just thought it was a waste of time. I'm sorry about it. <laughs> like, like <laughs> I'm sorry. I just I just feel like like you see all the corporations and he's like, "Is this really going to matter?" Like, like it goes into the same bin. Like nobody cares. Uh, I'm sorry, it's it's on me a little bit. Sorry, future person.
0: You have been listening to John Bounds, John Hickman, Danny Smith, and me, Mark Stedman. We are Beware of the Leopard, and our voice of the guide is the notorious Emma Wright. You'll find links to all of our stuff along with our back catalogue at btlpodcast.com. That's where you can also sign up to be informed when our next episode drops, as well as the new book, which we are working on as we speak. Uh, If you have any follow-up for us, feedback at btlpodcast.com is where you can send it. So I made a joke um, that I do all the writing and uh, the lads take all the credit. Just to be clear, that's absolutely not true. All the bits you hear read by Emma are written by each of us. They are very good boys and always lift their feet up off the floor when I'm hoovering under the big chair. We'll be back in a few weeks with our next episode
1: all about fashion. So until then, share and enjoy. Imagine coming up with a brand for, like, the whole thing about, like, oh, I don't know, they've come up with a brand of car and it means c*** in German or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> I mean, I would imagine means c*** in German because that's a pretty German-sounding word.
1: It's well, it, weirdly, um, uh, I remember once being with, in a room with some people, one of whom was cutting their toenails. Stay with me. <laughs>
2: I'm along with you with this journey, mate. Um, I've packed my bags. The rec- that's there. Come on, t- good, bring it. I was in a,
1: I was a room in um, Holland with someone who's cutting their toenails, <laughs> and someone. What? No, come
2: on, all story. All All stories start this normally. It
1: was a lovely room. It was a lovely room. Very, very Dutch. Very sort of Scandinavian style furniture. We have house plants. Um, quite warm, uh, open plan type uh thing. Uh, they, they were cutting their toenails onto the um, coffee table. Mm. The guy's name was John, actually. We called him Dutch John to differentiate. Got it.
2: Hang on. Were you in? Were you no, in don't. Poland? Don't. We can't. No. Just, just let,
0: yeah, let him yeah, throw I, 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 through. I was,
1: I... Please, let him play through. Let him play through. By rights, you should have been English, John, then. Well, funnily enough, he was English, but he lived in Holland, so we called him Dutch John. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I beg of you complete this story. <laughs> I beseech you, John. English John. But he was chopping his he was chopping his toenails and uh someone said, What's he doing And they said, cuss. and his wife, who was Dutch, got very offended because She cuts. was English Linda, but Uh yeah, we call <laughs> we called her we called her we call, John. We, we called we her so English. Close. We were so close. <laughs> oh, God. She's dead now.
2: I I am still <laughs> waiting for the severe into socialism. Like
1: I am... Um, That reminds me of our Lord Marx. But essentially, uh, in in Dutch, uh, is cut. There you go.